everyone. Welcome to episode 105 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. I'm Chris Castor-Apple. Joining me, as always, is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. What's up, Chris? Not a lot. Watched a ton of Modern this weekend. Excellent. I played a ton of Modern this weekend. Yeah, between watching the Mythic Championship, just like as soon as I woke up, at like 6 a.m. it was on, and then I just watched that until it was done for the day, and then watched SCG Columbus <laughs> until like 7 or 8 p.m. Yeah. So it, was, it was good. It was a full weekend of being at home and not doing a lot. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to one of those weekends, which I think I get this weekend, okay. which would be nice. Yeah, yeah, we just came off of three back-to-back, like seven-plus hour yeah, travel drives. Much. Yeah, It was a lot. Uh, it's a good time, and... Uh, yeah. And I was in Columbus. Columbus is great, as always. It is your favorite city, right? Yes. On the tour? It is. Mostly because of North Market right next to the venue. It, that plays a big part. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> North Market's broken. <laughs> yeah, a lot of North Market tweets during the tournament. And I believe yeah. Ross Miriam's list of like things he ate at North Market during that weekend was like 15 things long. So Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so I played Burn this past weekend, and another one of the huge upsides of playing Burn is that a lot of my matches ended with 30 minutes left on the clock. And I was like, all right, time to go to North Market. I ate two hours ago. It's fine. Honestly, I really am kind of pumped to switch to Mono Red Phoenix for a little while so I can experience that for myself. Yeah, no, it's good. Cool. Well, we will be spending most of this episode talking about Modern, mm-hmm. despite our marketing for this episode we probably won't actually be yelling about hogak all that much yeah probably not. we will be trying to talk about how to adapt to the modern metagame as it exists right now given that hogak is still very very good despite having an important card ban from it let's see before we get too into it we want to thank our new patrons so nick chris noah b the king 8426 brad and nathaniel thank you guys so so much we really really appreciate the support we're kind of popping off a little bit lately yeah i'm I'm super excited this is great adrian c also thank you for upping your pledge that is really really cool of you um we have a number of people now in that like highest tier where we will be spending some one-on-one time hanging out if you are in that tier i have a room set up in the discord for like arranging that sort of thing and once we get our patreon pledges for the month thing this month so in the next couple of days then i'll be able to see exactly who is signed up for that and i'll make sure to message everybody and get a calendar going so definitely come hang out in the discord so we can set that up for you Uh, everybody else we got stuff coming on our way i've got this whole box of pins here and a a bunch of envelopes for those of you watching live (laughs) here are the pins they look great yeah they're pretty cool trying to get the uh, camera to focus on them i've been i've been rocking one on my play mat the past couple of tournaments and it's uh you know it's not very invasive it just kind of fits really nicely in the top left hand corner it's it's great it's and i think it's kind of charming i think it came out nicely i i agree um, so we'll be sending those out. Also have heard back from the artist that we are commissioning our playmat from, and he's excited to work on the playmat, and he's look, I, we should be getting the sketch in the next day or two. Ooh, and more yeah. things to be excited about. So lots of stuff to be excited about. So we cool, will be cool. sending out cool supporter stuff, but as always, like really, really appreciate it and hope that this stuff that we send out, we hope that you guys like it. Yeah. Should we do a Keeper Mole? Let's do it. All right. So you played Burn this weekend. I did. Which will probably lead off the modern section by talking about why you made that choice. Yep. And then uh, we'll, we'll sort of go into it. Mm-hmm. But Burn, 
with the London Mulligan has some interesting Mulligan decisions. So it what, does. What is this one? So this one was I was on the draw against humans. Mm-hmm. Um, I was up a game. I stole game one. Uh, it was great. And the hand is a one lander. So it's Sunbaked Canyon, which is the new uh, Horizon Land. Monastery Swift Spear, a Lightning Bolt, a Skewer, a Boros Charm, a Path to Exile, and a Searing Blaze. And this is a seven. This is the seven. Okay. Yeah. So I'm on the draw with the one lander, mm-hmm. but the upside of this hand is really, really large. It is. Uh, I have the one mana creature to play on turn one, mm-hmm. which is actually, one mana creatures are actually really important against burn. Against or, sorry, against humans. And that's a little counterintuitive because they're really bad late game. But if you can start off with one and get like two hits in with a goblin guide before they can clog up the board too much, that can really make the difference between... Because you, you want to be using your burn spells on their creatures a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And if you can like clear the way for your creatures to get in damage as well, it's much easier to turn the corner as opposed to having to use all of your spells early on all their creatures. And then when you do like kind of stabilize the board right. and they're only hitting you for like a couple of damage a turn, but they're at like 18 or whatever, it's, right. it's much tougher. It's the difference between trying to be a control deck mm-hmm. with no card advantage engine to then draw into. You're just, you just have removal spells. Right. That's not really a winning game plan. But if you're getting two points of damage in a turn, yeah. then you're a lot closer to doing yeah, something. for sure. So I have the one mana creature. I, I have a Sunbite Canyon, so it's a white source. Uh, and then the, like, the upside cards are I have a Lightning Bolt, a Path to Exile, and a Searing Blaze mm-hmm. in my hand. And those are all pretty phenomenal. I do have a Boris Charm in this hand, and Boris Charm is typically one of the cards that you cut in this matchup. Mm-hmm. I just didn't have a lot of sideboard cards for this matchup in particular, and you have to cut your Eidolons in this matchup. Right. Uh, so They're worse than Grizzly Bears. <laughs> They're pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, so this was kind of, I think, the most interesting Keeper Mulligan that I had throughout the tournament. Uh, I thought it was really close. And I decided to risk it because I was already up a game, and... It's really hard to win on the draw against humans, no matter what. Okay. And I figured that I would have to get lucky in order to be able to put myself in a position to win an an on-the-draw game. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I figured that if I spiked a land in the next two draws, I would have a decent shot at winning this game on the draw. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, but if I brick off, there's still game three. So it sounds like that's hinging a lot on your evaluation of your percentage in the matchup. Yeah. You're willing to take a risk because... The the on-the-draw games are, you have a low win win rate in Mm -hmm. them, and this hand has everything except for the second land. Yeah. My, like, especially on, like, a mulligan to six, my expected win percentage, uh, I think, is, like, around 40% 40 or lower, Mm -hmm. um, you know, once I've mulliganed in on the draw, and they kept their seven. Yeah. So... And uh, you can, you know, just ballpark. Obviously, you don't have the hard numbers, but what if you do draw the land in your first two draws? Yeah, two shots. I think that... Well, but what do you think your, like, chance to win that game is then with this hand? If I do hit, I think that I might be even up to, like, 55%. Okay. It's hard to do all that calculus kind of in the moment or whatever, but but that was kind of, like, my feeling of, like, all right, you know, if I can spike one here... I'm feeling pretty good about this because if I can go, if I can curve Swiss Spear into Blaze into Path Your Biggest Thing, potentially bolt you and like really put them on the back foot, mm-hmm. you know, that could be, that could be pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is mostly a lesson in keep the high variance hand that has a high payoff if you don't feel comfortable with your like win rate in this right. particular game that yep. you're playing. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that was definitely the heuristic that I used. It was like, I'm, you know, I, I feel like I'm already a dog. So now I'm like willing to put myself into a position where if I can spike, I'm like pretty well set up in this game. Yeah. That yep. was, that was the risk I was willing to take. 
Cool. Makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> Lee says Collins not enough sideboard cards Mullen. It's funny It's <laughs> okay. funny that you say you couldn't take out your Boros charms in the matchup. Yeah. Um, okay, so story time. I had practiced a lot with Burn leading up to this tournament with like various 75s, but kind of something that I do with a deck that I'm always that I'm like as comfortable with Burn with mm-hmm. is that like right before the tournament I'd like do a lot more theory crafting and I just kind of sculpt my own plans out for all my matchups and use that to dictate what I'm playing in my sideboard. Yeah. So I did that for for this tournament with Burn because Burn is a deck I played. It was like the first modern deck I ever played, so I played it forever. So I I felt pretty good about just being able to theorycraft my sideboard and my plans and stuff. And I did that for all the popular matchups. And I even wrote it up and posted it on our uh, Discord, like all of our sideboard plans and everything. Yeah. And as part of your weekly write-ups for $5 patrons. There you go. Yep. So hopefully those $5 patrons enjoyed that. But when I got to the site, so I, I did that and then I like wrote up the, the sideboard that, that all of those plans kind of culminated in. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to the tournament the next day, it was, I have a buy. So it was like 1030, like after dead, like the registration deadline or the, yeah, the deck list submission deadline pulled out all my cyber cards and there were 14 of them. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and no. I was like, wait a minute, what's my 15th card? And I like looked back on like the the sideboard guide that I had posted and it was just 14 cards <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> and why like clearly you didn't need it then. So. Um yeah, well, I yeah, I I decided to just kind of like have fun with that. And just cuz it was too late and there's nothing I could do you and just I just got to kind of embrace it at that point. Yeah, I knew I was going to be counting up 14 sideboard cards for the rest of the tournament. <laughs> So I needed that moment for me, like, looking and counting my 14 sideboard cards to be, like, a funny thing for me and right. not, like, a, a painful oh, no. thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I, I was pretty proud of, of my attitude towards it, which was good, because it was kind of a funny thing that, you know, it's like, yeah, silly mistake that mm-hmm. I made. I registered 14 sideboard cards, but I had all my plans laid out and they were all great. Right, you did the work. Um, so that, that, I think, matters more than having a 15th sideboard card. Right, if it's a um, bad sideboard with 15 cards in it that your plans don't make sense, that's clearly a lot worse than a 14-card sideboard where your plans all are yeah. the ones you're comfortable with. Exactly, exactly. I don't know if they, I was on camera twice over the weekend. I don't I don't know if they, like, mentioned that at all. But they, yeah. Oh, they did. Oh, they, okay, yes. good. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping that they were going to rip into me it, it was definitely mentioned Excellent. don't worry yeah yeah 14 74 card burn is what i played in this perfect tournament. yeah it, be uh, so it felt what, really good yeah, yeah so what what went into that deck choice what did you think about the format going in and like what were you trying to exploit by playing burn so so we knew that hogak was gonna be really big yeah. zan had been working on monored phoenix mm-hmm. for this tournament because he liked his matchup against hogak he really liked the deck overall. He figured out that Renin Six was a good addition to the deck, which we have to talk about a little bit. Which, yeah, we'll get into that. I'm sure because that that is that also was, that's a crazy a wild thing. One. Yeah, watching him play that deck was really cool, and like watching the whole Renin Six story unfold was really cool. The kind of the main philosophy that we figured out was that bolt you strategies were well positioned, mm-hmm. and I didn't have as much experience with Phoenix Mono Red Phoenix, and I wasn't quite willing to pull the trigger on the Renin Sixes. I just like wasn't sure if that was where you wanted to be or mm-hmm. if you wanted to take the deck in like a more aggressive yeah. position. So I kind of took like the bolt you strategy philosophy that Zan was bringing to the table and being like, all right, I think that burn is likely a... Just actual literal bolt you strategy. Yeah, a good deck in the format yeah. where I like its matchup against Hogak. 
And uh, playing against a lot of Hogak players, they were like, oh, no, I'm playing his burn. This is, like, my worst matchup. So I, yeah. I felt pretty validated in that. So. Well, and it's funny because, like, it doesn't look like that's necessarily how it played out in, like, the matchup matrices that we got after this weekend. But when I was playing Hogak before, I didn't want to play against burn. Mm-hmm. And an aggressive deck against Hogak is actually reasonably well positioned if it has the reach. And I think a big part of it is just that, like, Hogak often starts out on 15 life. Yeah, just your lands hurt you if you don't have, like, double black cleave cliffs, and there's kind of nothing that the deck can do about that. Right. And if you're ready to exploit that, the creatures are slightly better at blocking now that they have Satter, Wayfinder, and Stitcher Supplier, but they still have a lot of creatures that just say this can't block. That came up a lot. Yeah, for sure. The, like, the the mass of creatures that just, like, couldn't block. I felt, like, really comfortable because I was like, oh, this Goblin Guy's going to get in for, like, six damage, yeah. and you're very dead. <laughs> yeah. Anytime Goblin yeah. Guy does a Boros Charm, you're probably going to win. <laughs> right. When it's a Boros Charm and a half, you're really ahead. Yeah, yeah. And I liked my sideboard plan against uh, Hogak a lot. Uh, I had three Tormod's Crypts, three Path to Exiles, and two Deflecting Palms. Mm-hmm. And I chose that over Rest in Peace. Because Rest in Peace is in my mind just not very good against hogak if you're on the draw it does pretty much nothing they might just have a hogak in yeah play. they're very likely to have a turn to hogak mm-hmm. much more likely than they used to be because saturday yeah. wayfinder is so good yeah. at finishing up i played a guy on turn one here's a guy on turn two i've got a right. lot of cards in my graveyard here's a hogak right yeah like any you know any like one mana creature plus fetch land plus uh Seda Wayfinder is just, yep. just a Hogak. Yep. And yeah, the consistency there is really huge. So I didn't like Rest of Peace. I thought it was going to be too slow. Plus with Burn, you just don't really want to spend a turn not being proactive. It, it's just like a huge bummer when your turn two is just like, all right, rest in peace. And like maybe your opponent already has some power in play so that like it makes it awkward. Yeah, definitely. Generally, the games you're most likely to win against Burn with like Blue Red Phoenix, for example, is yeah. when they spend a turn two or a turn three casting a rest in peace. <laughs> yeah. It's not a burn spell. It right. doesn't contribute to the board. Yeah. They're just responding to you, which is not what Burn wants to be spending mana on. Yep. So I really liked embracing that kind of like proactive tempo-y plan of like Tormod's Crypt is something that you can play whenever. And I used them like pretty aggressively. Whenever my opponent was like threatening to be able to cast a Hogak, I mm-hmm. would just pop off the Crypt. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of knew what I was in for there because Tormod's Crypt, you know, if you've played Hogak against those kind of one shots, you know that you, you can plow through them like mm-hmm. pretty easily. But all I really wanted out of it was to buy like a turn of not getting hit by a Hogak, which is just the all of the difference with Burn. Right. And not getting blocked by a Hogak too, which is right. yeah, a pretty big deal for sure. So so I like that. And then uh, Deflected Palm was also uh, just a, you know, a really good card against Hogak. Right. Ate you. They can't kill you without attacking with their guys. Right. And to kill you before your lightning bolts kill them, they right. usually have to attack with the Hogak. It's right. really hard to play around that. Yeah. Although, of course, Carrion Feeder is the main way to play around Deflecting Palm. Yes. And that, you know, that did actually come up where uh, sometimes you have to, like, path to exile the Carrion Feeder. Mm-hmm. And it looks weird. And it's kind of like putting all your cards face up on the table. And they attack you with a bunch of stuff. And you're like, all right, path your Carrion Feeder. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Okay, do, what what are they going to do? Sacrifice their Hogak right. preemptively before in my combat? Palm? Right, right. Yeah. That's that's also a hell of a bluff if you can like pull off the you yeah know, get you to sacrifice your Hogak. You better sack it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you know you definitely have to be proactive in getting the carrion Peters off the board if you do have a deflecting palm in your hand. Mm-hmm. But typically you can like fit that in in ways that don't look quite as conspicuous. Right. If you can get one with a searing blaze or whatever, then yeah. then you should th- try to do that. Right. Yep. 
But yeah, and then, you know, just in general against the rest of the field, not many people were, like, actively gaining life, and I thought that my matchup spread against the expected field was pretty good. I registered zero skull cracks right. in this tournament. I, I wanted to tweet about this, but I didn't want to, like, tell people this in <laughs> yeah. the middle of the tournament. But, like, on Friday, when when everybody was... Or on, on Thursday, everybody was putting decks together and choosing cards and stuff like that, and... You said, wait a minute, is anybody, what life gain cards are people playing in this format? Yeah. And I looked at you and I was like, I guess Worm Coil Engine and that's it. Yeah. And then like 20 minutes later, like you had a burn deck sleeved up and then a day later you had zero skull cracks in your 74. (laughs) Yeah. Zero skull cracks in my 74. I, I, if you're going to play my list, which I do, I think the list is really good right now. Yeah. Just throw in a skull crack. Sure. Yeah. You don't even need to cut anything. It's great. <laughs> I mean, I do think I really love, number one, I like like the ballsy choice of burn with no skull crack. But sure. I also think, like, if there is ever a format where you run burn and you're like, it's correct not to run skull cracks in this format. That mm-hmm. means that burn has to be a pretty good deck. Yeah. yeah. And so, I, I definitely agree with that, for sure. Yeah. So you were, you were live pretty late into the tournament. It yeah. seemed like a fine choice. No, uh, I was doing great. I was 10 and 3 mm-hmm. at one point. Uh, needing to win the last two to top eight. I ended up losing the last two to top 33. But... Ugh, I saw that. That's brutal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it goes. If if you can ever put yourself into a position where you're within striking distance mm-hmm. with a couple of rounds left, you just can't feel bad about that no matter how right. it ends up at the end of it. Because I, you know, I put myself in that position and then I lost to humans and then I lost to Hogak. And, right. you know. You just needed a couple more like coin flips or whatever to go your way. Sure. Or they just didn't yeah. quite. Yeah, but I felt felt good about the the deck selection. So cool. Yeah. So let's talk about the kind of metagame as it played out yeah. in the two big tournaments this weekend. And obviously, like the big story of the weekend is that Hogak is again the most dominant deck in the format. Yep. Um, we kind of missed it a little bit like a week before the tournament, but then once the pro tour or the mythic championship deck list started coming in and the pros started talking about what their testing had shown them and stuff it became clearer and clearer that hogak was the most important thing going on yeah. in in the format right to such an extent that leyline of the void was the most heavily played card at the mythic championship with over 800 <laughs> copies registered crazy uh i think at the last mythic championship they put these numbers up too and the top played card was surgical extraction but okay fair yeah uh, but that was still only like 500 and something copies right and so this is pretty wild we saw ley lines of the void in human sideboards we saw it in i mean obviously hogak sideboards we saw it in jun sideboards we saw it in hilariously all the tron sideboards and tron is a deck that runs oblivion stones and, right. and yeah. ugin so it like it hates having ley line of the void in its sideboard but just yeah. Basically, every single deck in this format is putting ley lines into its board in an attempt to keep up with Hogak post-board. Yeah, yeah, and it's pretty necessary. I mean, Hogak just kind of demonstrated that it is still the most powerful deck in Modern. Mm. Not particularly close. Unchecked, it's just yeah. doing things other decks yep. cannot keep up with. You're just really consistently putting, you know, 16-plus power into play on turn two. <laughs> like, that's your, like, average draw, <laughs> is you just, like, dump your hand. and yeah. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's very crazy. I think on camera at one point, Austin Collins brought back four Vengevines in a turn. Nice. Yeah, love to see it. Um, Do you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not so sure. Yeah. 
I'm an Austin Collins fan. So. Uh, yeah, that's true. So <laughs> love to see that's it. reasonable. But yeah. the fact that you can do that in modern is not really the yeah. best. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So, you know, definitely the biggest story was Hogak. Hogak and not only really heavily played, but Leyline of the Void, the most played card in the tournament, mm-hmm. Hogak still has a 56% win rate. Yeah, the highest conversion rate from day one to day two, mm-hmm. the most the the most representation in and highest conversion rate to like the eight and two and seven and three lists, and just absolutely was the best deck in the tournament despite all of the hate. Right. So that's pretty unreal. I've got to say. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, the resiliency that that deck has to all the hate as well is pretty extraordinary because. The Hogak players know that you're, like, post-board, no matter what matchup, your opponent is a huge favorite to have a ley line. Mm-hmm. And they can prepare for that and mulligan towards their, yep. you know, ley line removal spells. Yeah. There were a lot of Force of Vigors and Claims and uh, Assassin's Trophies just, like, super prepared to deal with ley lines. Right. And one of the problems now is, like, the starting 60 when there were altars and bridges was pretty set. There was very little room for flexibility because there were so many moving pieces that you just had to keep in there. And that's why, you know, when we played that format, we thought that Phoenix was a strong choice because Thing in the Ice could beat their, like, Vengevine draws and Surgical could help you against their combo draws. Yeah. I don't think that's the case anymore because most of these decks have found room for some spot removal in the main deck. And so you just can't rely on Thing in the Ice to, like, be a weapon against them. And that and London Mulligan reasons and other reasons and stuff are reasons that I agree with the Ross Miriam article on, on Premium today, which is just, like, got to step away from Is It Phoenix for a while. Yes. Yeah, Is It Phoenix is definitely not uh, not what it used to be. Nope. It took a lot of hits. Uh, it doesn't have a good Hogak matchup. Mm-hmm. And every other deck got better from the London Mulligan rule, and I just don't think the Phoenix did. Yeah, and Phoenix also just didn't really get cards that are relevant to the format right now right. you know you get little upgrades maybe you have season pyromancer on the sideboard aria of flame is good but honestly like only because it doesn't get hit by graveyard hate it's like really too slow for most of your matchups and right now yeah you just don't have the weapons to to really compete anymore like you're still probably like a 45 percent ish deck but that's not what you want to pick up and take to a tournament right it's just like playing prior to ren and six jund you just don't want to do it <laughs> right yeah so definitely hogak big story of the weekend mm-hmm. uh but i also want to talk about this the monored phoenix deck yeah that so that deck was the deck that we saw had the highest win rate from day one of the pro tour mm-hmm squeaking out Hogak by like a couple like you know like maybe one percentage point slivers yeah yeah um and it was funny because we were driving up to the tournament and we were all kind of talking about you know which decks we expected to be best positioned against the field and Evan Whitehouse did his uh like spreadsheet calculations Mm -hmm. based on you know our just like estimated win percentages yeah and the deck that ended up coming out on top was Monored Phoenix Followed by Burn, followed by Hogak Mm -hmm. against the field. And then, like, two hours after we had done that calculation, Jonathan Swiftspear on Twitter posted, like, his, like, number crunch from day one of the Pro Tour. And our, like, estimated percentages for the, the, like, win percentage against the field Mm -hmm. was, like, really really accurate okay based on like and small sample size right, granted, right. but um but you're still doing something right we had monored phoenix at like 
54% against the field, and uh, Montreal Phoenix was 54% at day one of the Pro Tour mm-hmm. at the top, you know, and Hogak was also doing well. So we felt, like, pretty comfortable with our predictions, and we felt, like, really validated by, like, oh, okay, wow, gotcha. we have, like, real data before a tournament, which is kind of unusual. Right, a simultaneous <laughs> right. Yeah, tournament. Yeah, yeah but, yeah. like, slightly ahead, so... Yeah, a day and a half ahead or so. Right, yeah. just enough, right. <laughs> so, yeah, so Zan ended up playing... Monored Phoenix, mm-hmm. and I definitely recommend you check out his uh, deck tech that he did over the weekend if you can find that on YouTube. Yeah, so he made some different choices. He splashed mm-hmm. green, yeah, for main deck Ren and Sixes, right, and some sideboard cards as well as some main deck Season Pyromancers. Yes, so and those two were huge. Season Pyromancer was a card that not a lot of other people were playing mm-hmm. in Phoenix, but it was just phenomenal for us every time. The card's like raw power level is really, really good, especially when you're dumping your hand, like, you know, trying to be aggressive and everything. Yeah. And that card put in a lot of work. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just ends up being a body that draws two cards and has no interaction with the graveyard hate that everybody is playing. Yeah. Um, including like the main deck stuff. Like, you you can easily get game one Nile spell bombed, and then you have Bedlam Revelers that cost five mana stuck in your hand. Yeah. And this card doesn't have that problem. Right. And that kind of consistency was exactly what we were looking for. Because we knew that Graver Hate was going to be everywhere Mm -hmm. anyways because of Hogak. So we wanted, you know, a little more resiliency to that. Yep. And Um, and the Renin Sixes... The Ren Sixes, I think, were powerful just because it's a broken card. Yeah, I, I like that's kind of where I come to, where I've come to on that is that it doesn't, you know, it does have synergies with the deck. Mm-hmm. Putting lands in your hand with Faithful Suiting is really nice. Right, you get extra cards there. It definitely gives the deck staying power. Yeah, you know, you, you have some Horizon lands that you can sure. recur with it, so it definitely does have all of that stuff. But kind of like philosophically. And I think that this is why we were all a little hesitant about it, was that like it doesn't really fit in well with the plan of Phoenix. But Zan's just correct in that the card is just... It's just a five-star it's just, card. It's just a five-star card, and you should just, you know, if you can play it, and the mana was completely fine, um, you should. <laughs> and I mean, it has lots of little things. With like Soulscar Mage, you're putting minus one, minus one counters on stuff. and Yeah. No, for sure. Uh, and it does trigger Prowess, because that's how Prowess works. <laughs> right. And it is... Yeah. Like, it is kind of cool. Like, you get to play a non-creature threat that is a reasonable mana cost and then doesn't die to whatever... I board in Fatal Pushes against uh, against Monored Phoenix. I yeah. don't board in, like, Detention Spheres or something. <laughs> You're not really ready to Detention Sphere decks, but, I, yeah. you know, I'm not really ready to answer a Planeswalker. Yeah. You know, Abrupt Decay or whatever is probably the only way until they turn the corner and get to start attacking you back. But it's really hard to start attacking back against Monored Phoenix in the early couple of turns so. yeah yeah i mean that deck's really good at being the proactive player for mm-hmm. sure do the renin sixes come out in the hogak matchup or i don't really know how he was boarding the deck i think so i i didn't map out his plans with him so i'm not entirely sure what his cyber plans were specifically sure um but uh i would assume that they come out in a lot of those like super proactive uh matchups yeah i mean my gut like just deck and especially modern philosophy, is to build my main deck to be as proactive as possible and then sideboard into a deck that's capable of playing a slightly longer game. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not the direction that yeah. he took. And, I mean, the deck certainly was working. He was also live pretty late in the tournament, and a yeah. bunch of people picked up the deck and, and did pretty well with it too. So yeah. maybe my gut is like, 
leading me wrong given just how powerful Ren and Six is, and that's kind of throwing my radar off. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that it has the raw power level and it deserves the main deck slot for sure. Interesting. Yeah. I saw him like play this like 30 plus minute game against Jund mm-hmm. where you just ground him out. Yeah, you got your own <laughs> Ren and Six. Like, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> the game went for probably like 16 turns and at the end of it, Zan was like attacking with two Phoenixes and had a, had a Ren and Six in play. <laughs> and yeah, it was crazy. That is crazy. The Jund matchup is very good for Mono Red Phoenix. Anyway, just True. like True. the kill em plan works really, really well. Yeah, no, it's a good matchup for sure. But yeah, that uh, that was definitely a, a crazy match that I was able to watch on my phone at North Market. <laughs> good times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, deck is really cool. I, that's the first place that I'm exploring mm-hmm. going forward. I don't know exactly like what my team situation is for SCG Richmond, which is the next open, and that's going to be team trios so team trios is is it, it's split format right 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 okay. so standard modern legacy so yeah. i don't actually know what format i'm playing but i think reasonable odds that i end up on modern and so i'm probably going to start with this i definitely recommend this deck this phoenix deck yeah absolutely. or just togak because there's, there's a couple of things i want to talk about like how the format seems to be playing out right now okay so i think given a combination of the London Mulligan and the omnipresence of Hogak, you can kind of make some observations about where we stand. And we shouldn't fail to mention that Tron won both of the tournaments this weekend. True. Monogreen yeah. Tron, just ancient main decks. Like, no Karn Great Creator. Like, yeah. the Karn the Great Creator decks, like, the Karn the Great Creator Monogreen Tron decks did significantly worse at the Pro Tour than the just regular old Tron with the big Planeswalkers and just the regular Tron package. So I I think one thing is the London Mulligan encourages you to lean towards linear decks of some sort. Yeah. And the way that the format is with Hogak as a powerful deck that you have to be ready for, that pushes you towards linear decks as well because the format is just a fast one yeah and so what you want to do is you want to pick a linear deck whose metric is not really being attacked directly by what people's sideboard cards are right so for as an easy example you really don't want to be playing regular old dredge into this format right that's not a good choice but like the main powerful things that you can do in modern the main like linear mechanisms that we have access to are graveyard decks artifact decks and like broken lands decks basically yeah so picking the not graveyard strategy whether that's my gut is leaning me towards an urza deck or you know the i thought like tron was a great choice for this weekend Mm -hmm. the fact that it won both tournaments means that probably don't do it next week if you have a tournament to play in yeah so i I really want to be doing something powerful assertive that's just dodging where the hate is aimed right now Um, and i think phoenix mono red phoenix is also a good place to do because it's week to a stack of fatal pushes or whatever. Right. And you can't play a stack of fatal pushes <laughs> into a Hogak format. If, if everybody's playing Hogak and Tron, it's not going to work out. You can't draw a lot of fatal pushes in your opening hand. Right. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. And I think that Tron was exactly that for this weekend. It was just a super powerful deck mm-hmm. that dodged the angle of attack that everybody else was taking on the format. Yeah. When you just never get blood mooned over the course of a tournament, it's a good time. Tron is a lot more powerful. Right. Not that blood moon just like, has ever just beaten Tron, but <laughs> True. effective 
strategies have employed Blood Moon against Tron. And, yep. you know, nobody was putting Fulminator Mages in their Unearthed decks or whatever. Like, you just got to make Tron if you drew Tron. Yeah. Which is easier to do these days. It Yeah, true. And, you know, just another deck that really, really benefited from the, the London Mulligan. And I... One of the benefits of not being at the tournament and just watching a lot of coverage, I tried to pay really close attention to how much people were mulliganing in this tournament. Yeah. In both tournaments. And what did you learn? It was a lot. Yeah. The the players that were doing well, especially as we got later and later in the tournament, very, very common to see players going down to five or four cards. Wow. Um, okay. I don't know that I saw Dom keep a seven. <laughs> Like, yeah. the whole time right. that he was on camera, uh, won multiple games on four cards, and it's, the London Mulligan is here, and the learning how to mulligan with it is a key to success, and that means when you're playing these decks, mulligan aggressively. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, with Tron, it's just, if you're going to see another seven cards, no matter how far down you're going looking for that turn three Tron mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe turn four Tron with just like excellent payoff yeah. is really where you want to be for sure. Yep. Yep. I do want to mention that Dom played lights out. Like, yeah. I mean, big surprise. Right. But especially during the top eight, just had some of the, we, we joke about Tron being like not a fun deck to play and the sequencing is kind of locked in and stuff, but just the leveraging all of his resources and games where he was behind against Hogak and, you know, didn't have just a permanent solution to his problems and stuff. Uh, it was very, very fun to watch. Um, That's so awesome. Check those games out if you didn't have a chance to, to watch the top eight, especially. If you're interested in playing Tron mm -hmm. against Hogak, <laughs> watch these games. If you're playing Modern next weekend and yes. you're playing Tron. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. But Tron is another deck that Phoenix beats up on pretty hard. So that that's another reason why I think starting with Phoenix is Mono Red Phoenix is a good good place to be. Yes. Yeah. If if the metagame looks exactly like it uh, did this past weekend, I'm still really high on Mono Red Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Um and to a lesser extent Burn. Let's see, what else did we see? Jund is a lot better now. Yeah, Jund was also Jund was one of the decks that we had a lot of conversation around leading into the tournament. Mm -hmm. And I know that Dylan was really close to registering Jund. Yeah. You know, it was kind of a, a toss-up between uh, Jund and Hogak for him. And I told him <laughs> I wanted him to play Jund in this tournament because I I did really think that Jund is pretty powerful right now. Mm -hmm. I think it's just the best Ren and Six deck. Yeah, and Ren and you just get to run just four broken. Ren and Six yeah. in the deck. And that card's just insane. Um, our teammate Edgar was also playing Jund to a pretty, pretty successful day one of the Pro Tour. Mm -hmm. um, so you know we we knew it had some legs to it at least. Yeah. But I I told Dylan I was like, all right, if you want to lock in an eleven four at this tournament, you can play Hogak. Yeah. Because no matter what happens, you're gonna eleven four this tournament with Hogak. And guess what his record was? Sure enough. <laughs> yeah. Although you know he was beating himself up a little bit because he he should have 12 three should have 12 but that it's kind of a weird statement to make you should have done this because you know Play even even players of dylan's caliber are going to make mistakes yeah. so should have 12 three it's like okay sure if you're a god then maybe like maybe yeah. if you play every <laughs> tournament perfectly you would probably 12 three most of these opens right like yeah yeah that's just facts like making mistakes is but magic is hard yeah, yeah. Jund was definitely one of the more talked about decks leading into the tournament, and uh, I thought it was a good choice. Uh, it ended up not having a good tournament, from what I could tell, 
And I think that part of that was just because there was such a high density of Hogak and Jund is just not going to be able to win game one there. And like, even if Jund is like a 60% post board, it's, it's just going to have a really rough time. Right. Yeah. Um, Like I'm looking at this, uh, matchup matrix. Yeah. And obviously these should all be taken with a grain of salt because it's low. Even these where they have like 60 or 70 plus matchups from the Mythic Championship, you know, we don't know who was playing which deck. We don't, it's not that big of a sample size. And yeah, margin of error for these percentages are like generally around plus or minus 20, like 10 to 20%. Right, right. So. And, and so it, helpfully this, this particular matrix in the show notes like acknowledges what that margin of error is. Yes, yeah. So, you know, we've got that Jund versus Hogak was a 34% matchup. Yep, that that's makes sense. really bad. You know, that's plus or minus 12%, so it's possible that it was a 46% matchup. I think it's probably a little higher than 34. Yeah. But I agree. The the new hotness, the thing that makes Jund a very good and consistent deck is the power of Renin 6. Yeah. And Renin 6 is not giving you much game against Hogak. So, you know, you have to have hate early on and there's not that much game one and like scavenging use is probably not going to cut it and uh yeah so i i think jund is in a rough spot once hogak gets banned i think we can be ready for jund's rise to prominence yeah once hogak gets banned and it will yeah it has to i just i just think that it just yeah it's gonna get banned in the next announcement not particularly close. Leyline of the Void was by far the most heavily played deck at the Mythic Championship, and Hogak still had a 56% win rate. Right. That's not, like, clearly this... Because yeah. the decks were bad. <laughs> You're, the the gameplay is bad right. against Hogak yeah. because it's, like, hate or no hate, and mm-hmm. then can I disrupt the hate or can you kill me before that happens? And then you, everybody's deck is worse. When you put Leyline of the Void in your Tron sideboard, your deck is just, like, a worse there's no elegance to that like it's <laughs> right. just like you have this lumbering pile of cards right. and when you're playing the matchup you're just mulliganing to it yeah and you're an 80 percent to hit your ley lines if you mulligan to five in in london yeah so better start mulliganing you know yeah so it's it's pretty crazy but they're also they have a really good chance of hitting their assassin's trophy or nature's claim and they know that they have to and they're gonna mulligan towards that yeah it's, it's just like now everybody's right. operating off of three cards every game like that's not good it's not great that's really bad yeah, that's not what I want out of my magic. Where were we? The the matchup matrix. Yeah, just taking a peek at that. I mean, like looking at this, like Hogak just has positive matchups against almost everything. Mm-hmm. It's behind against Mono Red Phoenix. You know, it's like marginally behind against Tron and Urza and humans. Yeah, but the um, the confidence interval like massively covers all of those. Right, right, so right, right. it's hard to yeah. tell what it actually is. Mm-hmm. And it seems strange to me. And we were looking at this earlier where Hogak has a poor matchup against humans based on the data that we received, but fe- that feels inaccurate. It does. Um, humans can win a game one, which is probably participating in it being close. It has yeah. the ability to win game one right. via Reflector Mage. Sure. But Hogak is just able to do much more fundamentally broken stuff with much more consistency than humans is able to to deal with. Yeah. Like Hogak on turn two versus... like. Hogak on turn two versus an Ether Vial on the draw. Humans can never win that game. Yeah. So. Pretty tough. I do like the granted sample size of four, but uh, the Tron v. Burn matchup is a nice, good old fat 0%. (laughs) It's like not that far from 0%, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Um, you know, maybe 
slightly below 30 or something like that. Like, it's bad. Yeah, not great, for sure. But yeah, uh, so, you know, Modern's doing modern things. Mm-hmm. Everybody's freaking out. Of what, course. What else is new? <laughs> I mean, this is a freak-outable situation. Yeah, of course. That's, that's completely okay. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. Something needs to change. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not uh, not where we want it to be. I think Urza decks are also a fine choice going forward. We should talk about Urza decks a little bit. Yeah. Harlan Fear top-aided his third consecutive modern good. event. Not bad. With Urza. Yep. Definitely something to that. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Lee has been preaching that deck for a long time. Right. The deck is doing pretty well. BBD did well at the yep. championship with it. Yep. Um, and there was one list in top eight as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And Urza is definitely another deck that you need to keep an eye out for after Hogak gets banned. For sure. I think that the two main pillars of Modern after that happens is going to be Urza and Jund. I, if I were going to make any predictions. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Tron seems like a good way to attack that format. Then. Absolutely. I guess, and that just kind of like qualifies Jund, or Tron to be the third pillar then. Yeah. So. Now you can build Jund to be pretty good against Tron these days. But you, can. you can't do that if you're also building it to be good against Hogak, I don't think. I just... Oh, while Hogak's in the mix, all right. sorts of things are crazy. So. You're, just, <laughs> yeah. you're just spending too much energy on this matchup and you can't do the things you can't do your like assassin's trophy surgical stuff surgical is like pretty bad against hogak now without bridges to get it really of, is it yeah. just doesn't do the job you just never like the best card to hit is avenge vine mm-hmm. but you're almost never going to be able to hit a hogak yeah. with a surgical extraction right because the first they, thing you do when you dump a hogak into your graveyard you, you just cast you it, just yeah. cast it. <laughs> all right that's on the stack now <laughs> yeah great <laughs> I, and the 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 best I've seen surgical be against Hoyak is to like hit like a two up so they don't have enough cards. <laughs> I've you know I've definitely seen the play of like oh we better hit these two bloodstained myers so they're so they're two cards short Hoyak. Yeah. <laughs> good lord. Yeah. No. It's it's not a good time. No. Um. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's leyline. Like. Yeah. Leyline is the only graveyard hate card that's like saying I'm taking this seriously and that's why it was the most heavily played deck. At the or the most heavily played card at the Mythic Championship. Uh, yeah. Anything else about Modern? We uh, we I do want to talk a little bit about Legacy. I also want to talk if, a little bit if about. People Legacy. are tired of hearing about Hogak, though. It might be. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> not, not the best. Yeah. Going forward for Modern, I would definitely say like the level one things that I would be looking at. I I would be hesitant. You can play Hogak going forward. Uh, it clearly has the capability of fighting through graveyard hate and clearly can do well at tournaments. However, honestly, the experience of playing it in this tournament against everybody leylining you games two and three, I've we want to win, but we do play Magic to have fun, and this does does not sound fun to me. When you're just like playing against opponents and you're both on like four or five effective cards after you trade graveyard hate for a removal spell, and it's just like, man. Uh, but you probably yep. can play Hogak, and then the things I'm looking at are Mono Red or an Urza deck, mm-hmm. um, because either of those decks, like one of the keys to the format, I believe, is being capable of winning a game one against Hogak. Yeah. Even if you're not that likely to, if you're not just like 0% to win the game one, if you are a solid like 30, 40-something percent to do it, mm-hmm. then you're setting yourself up to, then maybe you can win a game one, and then you just need to grab one graveyard hate active post-board game. Right. And you're giving yourself a shot at least. Yeah. Um, and so Phoenix is capable of doing that, Urza decks are capable of doing that, and not a lot of other decks really are. Yeah, definitely narrowing the field. Yep, yep, for sure. 
But yeah, let's let's talk about Legacy a little bit. We I watched <laughs> so, you play a league last night. So yeah, so I am hoping to play Legacy in Richmond, just because I kind of miss Legacy, and you know, Modern's a little harebrained at the moment. So yeah, it's true. Uh, so I was looking into like what potential decks I would want to play in Legacy. And I'm always down for a wacky brew. <laughs> so I was looking at some of the lists that had done well recently on Legacy, and I ran across the... Uh, it was just listed as BG on Goldfish. Right, like, they haven't oh, what's quite this? caught up to this archetype yet. Clicked on that, and the the deck contained uh, 61 cards, so I already love it. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm very off 71 or realize, 75 right now, I guess. Realized yeah. about round two or three of the... <laughs> Yeah, of yeah, the league. yeah. Um on fire at nailing 75 recently. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Um well 74 so, and 76 averages out to 75. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, there you go. So anyways, this deck, it's uh it's a mashup between Hogak and Dark Depths combo. Not a lot of overlap between those two combos. Kind of not really, but Seder Wayfinder is the the glue. the glue that holds it all together. This is really <laughs> a I don't know that there's glue that holds this deck. This is like scotch tape and string holding this deck together. True. But somehow it just worked beautifully. It just worked. Yeah. It was insane. Every game. It just like barely got there on something. And right. it was good enough because 8.8s and 2020s are really good in Legacy. Really yeah. hard to deal with. Right. So just to kind of go over the deck list. Because mm-hmm. I feel like we should probably describe it a little bit. Yeah, probably. So it's got four of the new Elvis Reclaimers. This is the one, two that you, that's like crop rotation on a stick. Yeah. Um, essentially. So that does double duty for assembling your Dark Dex combo of Feth Spoon Stage plus Depths. And being um, a green creature. And being a one-mana green creature. <laughs> Got there. Yeah. Plays four Stitcher Suppliers, three Seder Wayfinders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are like the creatures that can convoke and also dump a lot of creatures, or a lot of cards in your graveyard. And looks for a land. And looks for lands. And you're a land-based combo as well. Right. And also combines very nicely with Cabal Therapy. Mm-hmm. Stitcher Supplier, I was pretty skeptical on. I was like, it feels like this only does one thing. Yeah. Turns out it does two things. It You can sack it to Cabal Therapy, right. which is really nice. Um, and it also, you know, just digs you towards, you know, your Hogax and your, uh, your other stuff. Right. It did mean that the deck felt a little unfocused in the matchups where we sideboarded out Cabal Therapies. Yeah. The... the graveyard enabling creatures felt mm-hmm. a little weaker and what might be true is that in when we're doing that we also need to make sure that we're trimming on the stitcher suppliers it's very possible yeah for sure and then you know it has four hogax for vampire hex mage which is part of the dark depths combo mm-hmm. and then it has a lot of hand disruption for thought seas fourth cabal therapy for crop rotation um you know it's got mox diamonds well uh, crop rotation not hand disruption but utility spell of some sort yeah right I clumped all those together because those are the, the instants and sorceries. Right. But yeah, so the eight discard spells and then the four crop rotations. Crop rotations is just the best card in your deck. Yeah, it's, it's just the best card in any land-based deck in Legacy. Yeah. It, the card's crazy. And then it has, you know, you have your bullet. It you, you get to also play the lands strategy of having like bullet lands, like you have Sejiri Step, mm-hmm. you have a Bog. Crocus in the sideboard. Yeah, Crocus in the sideboard, a wasteland. Uh, and then the other cool part about this deck that I really liked was the three Conley Gardens that it played. <laughs> and we we ended up like crop rotating for this a surprising number of yeah. times. Uh, it's just, it's kind of like, it plays one Dryad Arbor, um, but it's kind of like a Dryad Arbor that you don't have to like risk losing your yeah, whole land, land for. Itself. So if you, 
because it combines really nicely with Cabal Therapy. Mm-hmm. If you can like play the land and use that to Cabal Therapy your opponent, it's really nice. Yep. And but with Dryad Arbor, that's awkward because you, you have to lose Dryad Arbor. But with Conley Garden, you're, you're just losing this nonsense. You're just losing your silly token. token. Yeah. yeah. Also convokes for Hogak. Yeah. It um, it does a lot for the deck. Honestly, it, it really does. Yeah. And so, and three felt about right. Like we yeah. got the third one every once in a while. It's probably the one that I would cut to tone this down to 60 cards but... okay fair but three <laughs> yeah. is not insane is is all that i'm saying no for sure yeah but uh yeah so a, a surprising amount of synergy within this deck yeah. um that kind of fits both plans and, and like all the creatures in the deck actually do synergize with insulating you against edict effects just yes. like you have random one ones and so it's almost impossible to edict a merit lage yeah. in this deck as long as you play reasonably and that's honestly that's huge mm-hmm. is that one of the main ways that a lot of these uh grindy decks get a merit lage off the board is through an edict yeah or a liliana's triumph these days <laughs> and and edicts are just a joke uh, to play against with this deck you yep. just have so many just like dudes floating around plant tokens um, yep yeah you got plant tokens you got dried arbors you have stitcher suppliers you know <laughs> just kind of whatever um, i never want to edict a stitcher supplier yeah. it's pretty low value right exactly so that's really good so that definitely limits the number of things that your opponent can do and then also just like against all of the like the the non-combo decks mm-hmm. the card hogak is in a really good position yeah people are playing things like abrupt decay and fatal push and the like the only card that can get rid of a hogak is a swords to plowshares and even playing against the swords deck mm-hmm. like we cast a hogak but we had a second one and it doesn't cost as many resources to put a hogak into play as it does to like put a merit lage into play yeah so you can put the first hogak into play mill into the second hogak and then you can make that one right so you have i mean the swords decks are difficult and if we had played against a more dedicated swords and disruptive deck like i have a hard time picturing this beating death and taxes you know we played against like a four color maverick loam sort of deck and they weren't they had some swords but they weren't all in on that kind of plan and so we were able to fight through it yeah um yeah dnt definitely on paper sounds like the hardest matchup Mm -hmm. because they play wastelands and caracas and uh, you know, Hogax legendary, so that's annoying, and Swords Splash here. So, right. and then they have they all have... the Flicker Wisp tricks and stuff that like right. are have always been good against Depths. Yeah, yeah. So you know, definitely some annoying things going on there. But um, in what it feels like a majority of the field mm-hmm. right now, like Delver's never going to be able to beat a Hogak. Right. It's pretty much like getting one of those in play feels very similar to getting a twenty twenty into play, where it just ends the game if yeah. you do it early enough. Just crazy. At, at one point, we thought seized our opponent, and we saw a hand with like three different counter spells in them, and none of them did anything. None of them would counter any of our spells, <laughs> right? So yeah. there's like a spell pierce and you know days that we could play around and <laughs> spell snare. Just like, yeah, just none of them okay. worked, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, this uh, this for the legacy folks out there. This is what it has piqued my interest. It looks like an absolute pile. It does, but yeah. It, Somehow you just kind of get there. And just kind of cobble things you, together. You just like barely get there a lot. The cool thing, it oh, it does have Mox Diamonds though. That's a problem. For I what? don't think I can actually just like play this deck. I could like, oh. I I can put this deck together as long as I can grab some values from somebody. Except that it just has three Mox Diamonds in it. So And that number likely should be four. Probably. Mox Diamonds just great. Yeah, it is um, very good. 
So I guess that's just another card we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to borrow if we want to play the deck. Yeah, but. sourcing Mox Diamonds is a little bit difficult, but it can we, can, be. we can probably find some. Yeah, and Mox Diamond even better these days because a turn one Ren and six off of a Mox Diamond is yeah that that's big game. There's no better way to grind in Legacy than yeah. that. Pick so. up that land. Yep, maybe start wastelanding you on turn two with this Ren and six. Yeah, and... It's a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, Legacy also has a lot of crazy things going on i i will admit i'm not super in touch right now i think with legacy Mm -hmm. um you know it feels like the big decks are um, just regular depths people are testing out these four color piles you know some of them have delver some of them are more controlly yeah and then also just like blue red delver is like you know one of the main archetypes yeah although a lot of the blue red delver quote unquote are splashing run and six for that wasteland synergy no absolutely the card is just ridiculously good yeah and i know my teammate abe corgan is pretty high on just regular old lands right now so yeah. you know definitely another another consideration there you know legacy's great it's pretty pretty self-balancing so i don't you know i'm not as worried about cards like hogak and other things to just like really run rampant on the format so. yeah it might be an okay refuge if you just want to play some magic online and you want to play like actual games of magic the gathering right now that's my plan for the next couple of weeks i'll yeah. be honest yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um, it's, it's a bit of a bummer what's going on in modern and we definitely are going to have to wait until the next bnr announcement in about a month but i i foresee hogak being banned i do too yeah yeah and we've seen this before with like they like tried to ban something out of a deck and it just like didn't work and then they're like okay a month later they're like we were wrong. Right. I'm trying to remember what it was. Was that one of the Eldrazi cards? I don't remember. Well, no. With Eldrazi, they just banned Eye of Ugin. And that was fine. And it was fine. I feel like I remember them like having to go back and ban something. Oh, it must have been a standard. Why do I remember that scenario? Oh, it was with... The scenario I'm remembering was with... It was with standard, and they banned... Um, oh, they banned They Emrakul, banned Emrakul, and then, and then they, they banned ban Marvel. Marvel. Yeah. They were like, okay, yeah, we're sorry. Well, because, yeah. I mean, Emrakul was, like, being degenerate in five different decks at the same time, <laughs> yeah. so... Right, yeah. There were, like... There were five decks in that format, and four of them were Emrakul decks <laughs> of different varieties. There was Black Green, there was Marvel, there was... Yeah. Well, because there was just no other end game you could play if you weren't... Like, either you were a super aggressive deck or your endgame was Emrakul. Yeah. Because Emrakul would go over the top of any midrange or control deck. So, yeah. yeah. That was a good ban. Right. Um, yeah, but all, Marvel also needed to get banned, I guess. Yes. Yeah, definitely. What um, else have we got going on? Maybe head over to a Patreon question of the week? Yeah. So Grimms asks, uh, what percentage of expected meta and expected winner's meta do you hit for a deck before you start pre-boarding against it, both as a different deck and as the deck itself, pre-boarding for the mirror? Mm-hmm. So this pre-boarding is a really extreme concept. Yeah. Uh, you typically only want to do it when you expect the field to be really, really narrow, mm-hmm. and it likely the deck that you're pre-boarding against needs to be one of two things. It needs to be like very significant percentage of the metagame like you know 20 plus is what we're looking at probably or you need to be playing a deck that beats everything except for that deck and you want to hedge like a little bit more towards that one deck and then of course it needs to be a deck that's particularly vulnerable to the hate that you can put into your main deck yeah exactly you know we we did see a significant amount of pre-boarding at the pro tour Mm -hmm. a lot of the lists had main deck ley lines 
which I think that they did for a couple of reasons. So they there were open deck lists at the tournament. So before you made any mulligan decisions, you got to see what your opponent was playing. Mm-hmm. So that in and of itself made having ley lines in your deck, in your main deck, much better than normal. Because right. when you know that you're playing against a graveyard strategy, you know how valuable this ley line you can start just, is. You can just choose to mulligan towards that in game one. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, especially in a Hogak mirror, a huge advantage. So that was definitely a factor to why people pre-boarded there. Um, another example of pre-boarding is when decks like Jund play like main deck Nihil spell bombs. Right. And that's like a little different because it's not a complete brick in matchups where you don't really need it. Mm-hmm. Um, you still get to cantrip and stuff. It's not like you're drawing right. like a ley line. Right. Like, <laughs> and I would not count like an Urza deck playing a main deck spell bomb and a cage. Like, that's not being pre-boarded against mm-hmm. anything in particular. That's just having a couple of answers. Right. Yeah. So in terms of, like, what needs to happen for you to be able to pre-board, I think there are definitely a couple of factors. I think that you need to be able to be fine drawing that card in when it's bad. And Faithless Looting is just the answer to all of your problems. It is. For, for you know, a big part there is that you can just loot away your extra ley lines if you draw them, like, mm-hmm. in the Hogak deck, for example. Or with the Jund example, you, you just draw a card. You cycle it. There's spell bombs. Yep. Uh, and then, Hit it with Blood Raid Elf and cry a little bit. <laughs> right, yeah. And yeah, I think that like 20% is like my like minimum percentage of the field that I would want to start doing things like that in. Yeah, and um, I think that's I think that's not enough for me. I, I think in general, like playing the Nile spell bombs is fine. Playing Surgicals in Phoenix because you can still make use of the card is fine. Once you're getting to the point where you're putting ley lines in your deck, and yes, like I agree that like having the Faithless Looting like takes away a lot of the pain, but in a tournament without open deck lists, yeah. if you have a ley line in your opening hand, you're going to be putting it into play, or else why why do you have it in your deck at all? And yeah. then it turns out they're on Tron, and you're like, well, I really wish I could discard this card to Faithless Looting instead of having it in play. Yeah. So that, to me, I think you end up, the vast majority of the time when you pre-board, you are overestimating the effect it's going to have and underestimating the costs you're going to bear over the course of an entire tournament. Even Hogak Modern right now, you're going to play against a lot of decks where the people main decked ley lines in their Hogak decks. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened a little, and I think it's a small part of the reason why we only had one Hogak deck in the top eight, is... Some of the Hogak decks ended up battling against each other. The Leyline versions may have had an edge in that matchup, and then they played against other decks, and then yeah. they got KO'd because they had Leylines in their deck. Yeah, I could totally see that. Um, and so it's an interesting, like, kind of game theory, like, prisoner's dilemma sort of thing. Like, can we just all agree to not put the Leylines <laughs> in our main deck because sure. there's no good reason to if yeah. like, we can just all not do that? Right. Obviously, that is not how that works at an tournament, but... Um, I, I do think that the costs that you bear in a format like Modern, because the level of graveyard hate you have to, like, and we're talking about graveyard hate specifically here, but, you know, other things, like, if I were really worried about an Urza deck, the hate that I would have to main deck in order to actually be effective would be a Stony Silence effect. <laughs> uh, so the yeah. cost of main decking Ley Lines or Stony Silence effect and then drawing them in the bad matchups is so incredibly high yeah that 
you just gotta like look you gotta take a step back and you got i think it is so rare that it's actually correct to be pre-boarded because you can buy a very similar number of percentage points just fixing other things like i think i would vastly vastly prefer to be spending my main deck flex, flex slots rather than on let's put these ley lines in here and help my hogak matchup i'd rather find room for more cards that are removal spells to beat thing in the ice or whatever and also spots for cards that work when my graveyard doesn't exist and then you're helping a lot of matchups and obviously the percentages can end up breaking down in different ways but and maybe this is more a feel thing than anything else but having ley lines in play in matchups where ley lines aren't good is just so bad yeah and i've main deck i've tried main decking ley lines before uh in different types of decks and it's just been almost universally terrible to be pre-boarded in that manner so no that's fair and uh, i definitely agree that most of the time pre-boarding and doing stuff like that is not great Mm -hmm. i do think that the stars aligned for this pro tour specifically where i think that main decking some number of ley lines in your hogak deck was correct i think that extent. open deck list part is just the, huge yeah the open deck list knowing what you were going to play against and the london mulligan where you know that you're playing against not a graveyard deck mm-hmm. so when you do mulligan and you have leyline in your hand you just put that one on the bottom yeah it just like it feels pretty clean to me yep um, yeah if those are the rules you're operating under i yeah. can definitely see the case for it and and buy that that's correct yeah. for yeah. sure but generally like so Corey baumeister played Hogak with main deck ley lines at the Pro Tour, but he told us that if we were going to play Hogak, we should definitely not play ley lines in the main and swap them out for thugs instead mm-hmm. for all of these reasons. Yep. Of, you know, at the, at the open, it's not going to be, we're not going to know what we're playing against all the time. Right. So you don't um, have an opportunity to choose to discard your opening hand ley line to faithless looting. Right. You right. just don't get to make that decision. Because you're, you're in the dark, you just have to put it into play. Right. Yeah. Which is a bummer. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, my first round opponent very confidently slammed a ley line against me at the open. And you went. <laughs> and I went. Monastery Swiss Spear. Land a goblin guide. Yeah. And then went, all. <laughs> well, this didn't work out very yeah. well at all. <laughs> right. That's what always happens, I feel like. Every time that I've tried main decking ley lines, I yeah. just play against burn. And it's, it feels really bad. Yep. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Cool some takes on on pre-boarding definitely uh interesting stuff but stuff that i don't spend a lot of time thinking about mostly because i've like dissuaded myself from trying it so hard in the past but but good to talk about Leyline shuts off worm calls die checker yes okay so this is actually something that is worth mentioning Leyline has an effect against most decks in modern okay yeah it doesn't have an true. effect that's worth a card against most decks in modern true so that's especially against Tron. <laughs> that's the difference there. You're yeah. not gonna get their worm coil death trigger with your ley line because they're probably gonna Ugin or O Stone before that. You've is likely relevant. already lost that game, yes. as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah. Because you've just traded with a worm coil engine. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not great. You can get a, a chromatic star though. That's that's the one time where you're like Got yeah. him. Yeah. But uh yeah. Yeah. No dice trigger on that one. <laughs> great. <laughs> well, thanks to everybody so much for listening. We really appreciate you showing up. Uh, to all of our Patreon supporters, thank you so much. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter, of course, the show is always free and we really appreciate everyone just listening. But if you want to show us some support in other ways and get some cool Grindcast swag 
and admission to the Grindcast Discord. Um, and also, potentially, depending on what tier you want, the additional content, Collins' weekly write-ups, uh, that sort of thing, then head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Head over to mtggrindcast.com where we have links to our Patreon, we have links to all of our episodes, we also have links to Collins' coaching services. Uh, if you want to find us on social media, the podcast Twitter is at uh, mtg underscore grindcast. I am tweeting from at ccr underscore grindcast, and Collins is also on Twitter at Collins Mellon. Thanks to everybody so much for listening, and have a great week. Peace.